Good afternoon and welcome to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. On Worldview, we explore the fullness of humanity, guided by the principles of dignity and equality. And Worldview's Julian Haida recently sat down with a historian and theologian whose new book details a group of famous people who, while in search of these same principles, ended up changing the world. First of all, I wanted to thank you, Dr. Randall Jekylls, for joining us in the studio. Thank you for your book, Faith and Struggle, the Lives of Four African Americans. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So in this book, it's somewhat of a biographical narrative of yourself. Yes. And, and you encounter and document the religious lives of four well-known African Americans, and that's Ethel Waters, Mary Lou Williams, Eldridge Cleaver, and Muhammad Ali. Yes. And all of them come from different religious backgrounds. How did you settle... On these, and what is it about these four particular people who, in some respects, are, have very radically different approaches to faith and America? Right. What was it about these people that you knew you needed to not only write about them but put them in the same book? Well, I uh, was interested in that one, they were well known. Two, that they documented their kind of religious journeys in a public way. And I remember as a youngster, as a high school student, and as a college student, these people giving some expression to religion. Uh, When I first started to write this piece, I just thought about Ethel Waters. And the reason I thought about Ethel Waters is because I read this interesting piece uh, by a woman named Margot Jefferson, who happened to grow up in Chicago and went on to be a cultural critic for the New York Times magazine and New York Times in general. And Margot wrote just a small column about these kind of women who shook up the world, about Ethel's sexuality, and I was just dumbfounded because I remember as a kid... Which has been described as she's she's a lesbian. Right, right? she's a lesbian. Right. As a kid, I'm going, uh, this is the person that my grandmother made me watch religious television. And religious television, when I was growing up, was Billy Graham or Bishop Fulton Sheen. Buddhism, Confucianism, all the other world religions, they've all got good in them. Start with what is good. Remember that what is true in them comes from God. What is erroneous comes from us. Catholic and evangelical, right. very and, well known. And I grew up till I was 14 in New Orleans, so religion was all around my world. I mean, people defined themselves by their religions, whether they were Jewish, the synagogue was a block from my house, or Catholic, my neighbors were Baptists or Pentecostal, uh, my grandparents were Baptists, and of all things, we were Lutheran. And so religion was all around me, so I think about it a lot. And then we moved to Chicago. Uh, There were still black Catholics, but there were Buddhists and Baha'is and other traditions. And the Nation of Islam bought the old Greek Orthodox Church, uh, St. Helens, on Stony Island Avenue and made it their mosque. So religion was all around me. And, And I think people often take it for granted, but it drives a lot of the world. And so I wanted to think about these people. And as I thought about Ethel Waters, then I said, well, who else? And I thought about the vast conversion of um, Mary Lou Williams. And then I said, who are two men that we could think about? And And, uh, the first two are jazz performers. Yeah, and and singers. And Ethel Waters, I always get in an argument with with my students. I said, well, Ethel Waters was really Beyonce before Beyonce (laughs) uh, because she did so much. She was a recording artist. She was on Broadway and movies, and she's the second black woman to be nominated for an Academy Award in a film called Pinky. 
And she just did it all. And she was a presence. A heat wave blew right into town last week. She came from the island of Martinique. The can-can she dances will make you fry. The can-can is really the reason why. We're having a now, we forget the world before 1940 or 45, and we think about the world post. But she was really a superstar. And then when she gets older, what happens to her life? And then she joins with the Grand Crusade. A vast throng of earnest people gather here Sunday afternoons and every evening to hear the beautiful gospel music, inspiring testimonies, and to hear the word of God preached in the power of the Spirit by Dr. Billy Graham to the salvation of thousands. I do not believe that any man, that any man can solve the problems of life without Jesus Christ. So I just was interested in these kinds of questions. I'm a scholar, and I think scholars often ignore um, to their peril that lots of what drives people's lives are their varying face. You hoped, you wrote, to bring something out of these four particular well-known African-Americans that is relevant to non-religious people, especially in the sense that you felt that every single one of these individuals that you profile felt something almost political out of their religious affiliation. You say even that uh, denominational identity, especially in the area that many of these people were living, middle of early last century, denominational identity was everything. So what is that kind of relationship between the civil politics, especially since you write about Muhammad Ali, a, a kind of a liberationary kind of identity that is attached to a religious institution versus um, the politics of the day tied in with Jim Crow and, 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 and the kind of the liberation struggle of the 1960s? Right. Uh, yeah, all of them are searching for um, greater dignity. And I think um, one of the things that we have to see in all people is that um, they are looking for a greater dignity. They don't, people don't want easily be to, uh, categorized by race or culture or whatever. But religion also provides some people with a greater sense of themselves. So uh, I often think about my uh, uh, paternal grandfather uh, who was a luggage handler essentially – at the New Orleans train station. And, you know, people often look at men like that, oh, they're just, you know, and maybe give them a tip, maybe not. But when he got dressed on Sunday and he was a deacon in his church, that was somebody totally different, right? He had an important position. He was recognized. So I think religion gives people and those institutions give people differences of uh, kinds of uh, ways of looking at their world. Or they inform they inform their struggle um, that, um, for instance, in Ali's case, Allah does not wish for people to be subjugated. My life and my death are all for Allah. I repeat, my prayers, my sacrifices, my life and my death are all for Allah. And if I thought that going to war would be instrumental in helping 22 million so-called Negroes first receive their freedom, justice, and equality. If I thought going to war would help my people 
receive my freedom just as inequality. You wouldn't have to draft me. I'll go tomorrow. That is really at the heart of what he said, that we cannot enter an unjust war. That's really important. You mentioned Muhammad Ali and his conversion to the nation of Islam had to do with uh, the idea of liberation, of radical free will. And I think a lot of people think of conversions as taking agency when perhaps there isn't much opportunity for, for taking agency. What in this book, out of these four people you profile, what is your favorite conversion story? Oh, I think uh, Eldridge Cleaver. <laughs> Eldridge Cleaver, uh, for uh, the listening audience, was the minister of, uh, for information for the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s. The Black Panther Party was founded by UEP Newton in Oakland, California, and Bobby Seale. And they were young men out to set out to learn the law, follow the police, end police brutality, and and so forth. And they were influenced by Marxism. Uh, Eldridge Cleaver spent a greater part of his life in jail. Uh, from around age 15, he went to jail in the 50s for selling selling pot, uh, selling weed, and spent a lot of time in prison. And then he took a very, very dark, uh, no pun intended, a very uh, treacherous side to his life. He became a rapist. And so he spent even more time in, 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 in prison, uh, and rightly so. Uh, and he even says he was wrong about what he, he did. In prison, he uh, encounters everything. He he really wants to be a good Catholic, although he grows up a Methodist. What good is it for me to have survived that attempt at my death if I don't give that life back to the struggling to put an end to the system that took away Bobby Hudson's life and gave death to so many other members of our party? And the kind of priest makes fun of him, and he ends that. And then, like a lot of men his generation, uh, they discover Malcolm X, because Malcolm X was a prisoner and spoke directly to prisoners. And he becomes a member of the Nation of Islam. When Malcolm X is assassinated, he is done with that, becomes the Black Panther, and then uh, is in exile out of the United States with his wife, Kathleen Cleaver, and comes back to the United States and becomes an evangelical, a Mormon, you, you name it. Uh, even, even a stint with the Unification, unification Church. Church with yeah. the Moonies, <laughs> yes, that's correct. Uh, so he's all over the place. But what was interesting to me is that um, uh, he wrote a book with, that was a, a bestseller, sold nearly two million copies, called Soul on Ice, uh, which was about his prison experience. And so much of that book was him discussing religious figures from uh, the uh, Trappist monk Thomas Merton to uh, to Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, there's a whole series in there. And so he was acutely aware of religion. Uh, and, um, and so – but he wasn't uh, your traditional – he wasn't a full convert. So I, I titled that chapter from his own work. A religious conversion, more or less. Uh, <laughs> but he's the most fascinating, one of the most fascinating uh, people in the, the the book. 
You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Haida, and I'm talking with Dr. Randall Jelks. He's a professor of African and African American Studies as well as American Studies at the University of Kansas. And we're talking about his book, Faith and Struggle in the Lives of Four African Americans, where he profiled Ethel Waters, Mary Lou Williams, Eldridge Cleaver, and Muhammad Ali. We were just talking about uh, Eldridge Cleaver, who certainly informed by uh, Marxist writing and the writings of Thomas Merton. You also write about how Mary Lou Williams was also very much inspired by Thomas Merton and even tried to mimic some of his oh, his life. Which is interesting in this book is that um, Ethel Waters, Mary Lou Williams, and Eldridge Cleaver are deeply touched by Catholicism. They're all three of them are deeply touched by Catholicism in some form or another. Mary Lou Williams is, of course, becomes a Catholic Catholic, joins in Harlem, uh, St. Lourdes Parish, a uh, famous uh, black parish in Harlem. She is deeply moved uh, and, and, and decides she was going to give up our music and everything. Thank God for her wise priest. Her agent, Father O'Brien, just died last year. But uh, we ought to be thankful for them saying, you know, your gifts are from God. You're a really terrific composer and a pianist. We, we really want to uh, see you there. But, they, but she really has this experience. Several years, you left the jazz scene to concentrate on another very important aspect of your life. Can you tell us why you gave up playing professionally for that time? I think it was just a period, a turning point in my life. I really don't know. I've been asked that a million times, and I don't know. I just think I stopped on my own. I began praying in Paris. A musician took me to his grandmother's house, and I prayed at least uh, 11 months before I came back to America. I canceled all my work and everything, and... I began praying for at least 10 years straight. Off and on, Dizzy Gillespie, such a wonderful guy, he would call me to go out on gigs with him, and I'd go back in the house and pray again, you know. He's a and I, uh, I also know that you were conducting at the time that you were not playing in public. You were working in a church in New York, I believe it was, and you would invite musicians down to play with you in the church. And some of the people yes, that right. Powell came and Thelonious Monk. Right. I take them to church with me. I took Monk. The first time I took Monk, he was uh, he was frightened. He thought I was going to die. <laughs> he said, nobody ever asked him to go to church before. <laughs> He slipped and fell as we were going in. <laughs> it was really frightening. I took Bud Powell and several musicians to Dizzy Gillespie to church with me. And she's giving up everything. She's taking in uh, musicians who have problems, both mental illness and drug addiction, and trying to help them. And she sets up a, a foundation, Belcanto, to to really help. And uh, and she grows in her ability. So Catholicism runs through all through this. Hmm. And you say that Mary Lou Williams was, um, you know, despite not being able to 
quite ascend into the uh, patriarchal structures of the Catholic Church in perhaps the way that she wanted to, the thread of kind of being anti-patriarchal within a patriarchal institution right. was something that always flowed through. Right. I mean, things like emphasizing the family, but trying to think of the family in a non-patriarchal right. way. So how did particularly Mary Lou Williams approach issues like the family and gender? Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, being a musician uh, means that you have to be open I mean, being a really great musician, because you have to listen to sounds coming from Mary. Collaborative. That, yeah. And you collaborate with a lot of different people. I also think for Mary Lou, she felt this deep sense of love of God that, that, that this couldn't be confined to this, this one ritual. And one thing for Mary Lou was that she thought the blues— the form that, that bases all jazz, in R&B, in fact, was a music about deep suffering. Mary Lou, we know you have very strong feelings about jazz as an art form. What do you feel is happening in the jazz music scene today? Nobody realizes that it's a great art. It's the only true art in the world because it came out of the suffering of the first early black slaves. And it's all American. It has nothing to do with Africa or Latin American music and that, that it had a spiritual element. And this is why she wants the, the Vatican to take up uh, jazz. Uh, she uh, has an audience with Pope Paul the the Sixth, and I don't think they knew quite what to do with this uh, woman who's a jazz musician at the time. She does a liturgy, a uh, jazz mass, uh, and it's performed at the, the Vatican and, and still don't know what to do with it. But the Alvin Ailey dancers um, wind up making this uh, one of their most uh, um, beautiful dances, um, a modern dance, uh, called Mary Lou's Mass. Uh, And so that the word got out anyway. And I, I, I argue in the book that she anticipates uh, the kind of liberationist theology before that because her, um, her album uh, St. Martin de Porras, um, a Latin American saint struggling, um, he's, uh, he's a about, 17th century uh, eight, yeah, eight, eight, and, uh, yeah, and uh, Brazil. Brazil. And right, he's uh, struggling against the, the kind of ravages of the slave trade going through the Americas. Mixed and, race and Mixed race himself. And um, she's, she's pointing to the church that this, this, is, uh, this is somebody, you know, to record an album named after St. Martin de Porres, The Black Christ of the Andes. Right. That's right. So the name of her it, album. That's right. Uh, so it's, uh, she's very, very much um, l- learning to be a Catholic, but also pushing the Catholic Church to expand its horizon. Saint Martin de Porres, 
shepherd's staff on That was Worldview's Julian Haida talking with Randall Jelks, author of the book Faith and Struggle in the Lives of Four African Americans, Ethel Waters, Mary Lou Williams, Eldridge Cleaver, and Muhammad Ali. In a moment, they'll continue this fascinating conversation by considering the role of sexuality and religion in constructing race. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview on 91.5 WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Steve Bynum, in today for Jerome McDonald. Before the break, Worldview's Julian Haida spoke with Randall Jelks, author of Faith and Struggle in the Lives of Four African Americans. Now let's pick up where the conversation left off. What about the kind of the pervasive, I mean, I, especially in the United States, blackness has to do a lot with sexuality, with gender, there's a lot of idea of protection of women as far as the idea of, of white privilege being a defense of femininity. Mm-hmm. I mean these are these are obviously complex Category, arguments right. that are that are made, but uh, how does that play into some of these uh, people that you that you cover because it seems like every single one of the people you cover as deeply religious as they are kind of came through some sort of either sexual liberation or realization on their way to finding uh, religion right i I think that uh, that's an uh, in all the Abrahamic face um, uh, sexuality is just not talked about enough. I mean, I think that um, people are uh, sexual beings, and that is a part of their reality. The the emphasis on that we should be platonic, except in the kind of relationships of marriage, uh, that hasn't worked too well for people. <laughs> but uh, over time, I think it's been a a, a troubling aspect of. What do we do with the human body and, and the feelings that being human uh, generate is a, a great theological problem. What it gave me an opportunity as a writer and as a thinker to do was to explore how did Ali and the Nation of Islam perceive women, right? And what's the hierarchy and what are supposed to be done for women and what's the rules about sexuality in Islam uh, and even though Muhammad Ali is a celebrity and he thinks he's God's gift to women, uh, how, how does he reconcile that? That's no, that's because, because your nature no, no, no. is not righteous. No, 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 it's not because I'm white and you're black. No, I mean, that's your, nonsense. No, and you your know nature it. is not righteous. Let me, let me, let, how do you mean my nature your is not nature, righteous? You said you don't mind your woman. You, you you make, you're making some incredible assumptions about me. You tell me you don't mind. Yeah, the truth. The truth is that you don't mind your woman walking around half Sure. Sure. You don't mind it? No, of course well, not. Well, then that means you're not righteous. But let, 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 me, let me put a point to you. Half nude? Let me put a point And you're you. a Christian, too? Let, let me put a... No, Christianity I'm, I'm, back I'm in fact a non-believer, if it comes to that. Oh, well, now I understand why, then, you're a non-believer. No, I'm sorry. Not at all. I'm sorry, you're not a non-believer. You can't say just because you're a non-believing God... To show that people are... This is overused, but that people are complex. They're paradoxical. They're not just this one thing, uh, so forth. 
I mean, what happens to Eldridge Cleaver? Uh, spent years in incarcerated. Uh, who do you have uh, as a sexual partner in, in prison? Obviously, much of sex, both on men and women's prisons, are about rape. But there are also consensual sexual relationships and partners built in prison. So. Um, how does religious faith handle that? And I, I want to explore those things and give people an idea that these are all people wrestling with uh, their their live faith. They're trying to live what they think is a better life and a more godly life, but they're they're wrestling with all of these great issues that we all wrestle with. I, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, that what we just discussed, yeah. right? The kind sure. of the, 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 the sexual approach, especially because you know you write about how when you know Mary Lou Williams left her home, the greatest thing her mother was concerned with was that she would, you know, have a child and then that would be an extra mouth, uh, to, mouth feed. to feed, right? Yeah. And and especially the caricature, at least between Protestantism and Catholicism, is that like, well, at least life is good, bringing a child in, into the world. Well, we is, called it with. Our, uh, out of wedlock, um, you know, and the the worst term back in those days was bastard children. And so there was no room for a young woman or even a young man who um, young men got away with it, right? Because boys will be boys. But young women, it was still a scourge uh, in the household, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, to bring home a child without sure. being married. Of course, uh, in the 50s, when I was born, my parents got married. And when I looked at their marriage certificate, oh, I was born in September. They got married in March. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that that was the kind of enforcement uh, sure. that households uh, put on. Uh, put but there's on an women. emphasis on family. Right. Yeah, well, well family, but um, there are all kinds of makeup of family, right? I mean, the, the shape of family is, as you mentioned earlier, uh, is not this one a thing. Uh, what works for one family may not work for another. There are plural families. Uh, in the United States, we uh, emphasize, particularly by the 19th century, uh, throughout Europe and the United States, the bourgeois family, the kind of nuclear family. And whereas uh, older families are multi-generational, uh, uh, living in the same household. And, so, and parallel. parallel. Cousins. Cousins. Yeah, that's right. Godparents. That's so. right. That's absolutely correct. Uh, but those things, things. And the society, um, uh, one of the interesting things, uh, and I'm glad you raised this about African Americans, is that uh, notions of family that are promoted in the society uh, were there very much. But you also see the economic strain that people are under. I think notions of family gets dematerialized as though there aren't any strains on some families. Why do people give up children for adoption? Why do uh, people abandon children? Why are uh, people raised by their grandparents parents. or aunts or uncles That's if their correct. parents are? There are, you know. there are all kinds of strains and in strains mm-hmm. in relationships. Uh, so I uh, wanted to just make these people very much human without any sense of shame. You know, I mean, Mary Lou was a prodigy. So to go out at 14, 15 years old, it's very scary. Uh, and, you know, you're in a, a male world where, you know, sexual abuse had gone on for a long time. It's been like that with me all my life. I was professional at six years old. The, the union band used to take me out. And men used to hold me on their laps to play. And it seems that they uh, took an interest in me and took me along with them and taught me everything that I know. And I've been professional for years, you know. And at 12 years old, I was traveling everywhere, you know. 
Yeah, you write that she has to attach herself to a, a, a male performer so that she could get gigs. That's so right. Could... And also protection. Right. You know, I mean, so, you, you know, so imagine a teen group on their own out on the road. Uh, that wouldn't be so good. Yeah, she was very young. Yeah, very young. <laughs> yeah, very young. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm talking with Dr. Randall Maurice Jelks. He's the author of Faith and Struggle in the Lives of Four African Americans. We're talking about Ethel Waters, Mary Lou Williams, Eldridge Cleaver, and Muhammad Ali. And we're talking a little bit also about Dr. Jelks, who uh, has encountered all of these people. What was it about the year 1977? You reference it as as being this moment where you're in university and you and you kind of encountered all of these people. Yeah, uh, you know, I thought about that. 77 was just uh, interesting because I'm uh, will turn 21, and I'm I'm thinking about all of these questions. You know, questions uh, hang around with you the whole whole days of your life. So I'm thinking about religion. Uh, what does it mean to be religious myself? Um, what is it that, that I'm trying to uh, get out of my own Christianity? And that's that 21-year-old, you know, is everything is very present to you. And I'm reading the papers and I'm reading books. Richard Nixon had uh, was out of office. Gerald Ford was president for a moment. Jimmy Carter was just coming in. Think about it. Mr. Ford was a, a Episcopalian. Jimmy Carter is our kind of first openly evangelical president coming in. And it's an interesting transition moment. And it and seemed so, like at the time, especially ideology, I mean, you, you use also the word here, nationalism, but I mean, ideology and religion were a little bit more separated. I mean, yeah. today people you know equate evangelicalism with the American right wing, even the far right, right wing, right. versus kind of a, a non-theism or maybe mainline Protestantism with, with a kind of more center-left position mm-hmm. but you know at the time when when you're making these comparisons between Muhammad Ali and and you know Ethel Waters <laughs> what have we lost in terms of understanding how religion and ideology and, and nationalism whether it's a kind of a racial nationalism or any other kind of uh, yeah I, I think I think we don't I think reporting uh, doesn't look at the nuances of people a lot more I don't think they really ask people why do you feel that way? What is it that you're trying to protect? I always ask my students, uh, okay, you're conservative. What are you trying to conserve? What do you think is being eroded? What is it about the, the family value that you have? Or what do you think you need to be building, right? So what, is, what does a strong family look like? Religion tells you that, right? What's a strong family look like? Um, it is one yeah. of the questions that religion sets off to answer. That's you know, right. That, yeah. what's, a, what's a good rules for engaging the day-to-day life of people? And so religion tries to do that, and I'm just trying to unpack, well, what did they think about those questions? Uh, what, I'm at, at heart a historian, and so I'm like, oh, you know, what do they think about it? But the only way I could figure out how to string them together was to to stitch them with the, my own narrative. I couldn't. In uh, two previous books, I, I'm the historian. I, <laughs> I I can look on Mount Olympus and look down and say, well, you know, and this is what the letters of correspondence said about this and that. But in this one, I, I, I kind of knew the people and I was like, or not know them personally, but this – watched them and observed them from a distance. And so I couldn't remove myself from those kinds of questions. Those were 
my questions, even if I didn't ask. So when I saw the Nation of Islam, well, so why do they think the white man's a devil? You know, yeah. what is it about Mr. Muhammad's teaching that he thought in his cosmology white people were devils? Well, if you came and from this jo- is Elijah Muhammad, uh, yeah, yeah, yes. If you came from Georgia, uh, where he came from, where there were series and series of lynchings, you might think white people are the devil. Uh, you might have that. The or if you go to Detroit in the nineteen twenties uh, and thirties, and you're excluded, or you're doing the hardest work in the Ford plant, um, and black workers did, and it's degrading and it's ho- horrible. You might think this whole system is of the devil. All of you white boys are breaking your neck to get to Switzerland and Canada and London. I'm not going to help nobody get something my Negroes don't have. If I'm going to die, I'll die now right here fighting you. If I'm going to die, you my enemy. My enemies are white people, not Viet Cong's or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs, and you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. And so even if you're emulating this to do small business and all of this other thing, because if you looked at the Nation of Islam, it, it taught quote what any evangelical church would do, right? It's almost so, mimicking it, right? We, it, right. It's No, it's right because at heart, all religion is, you know, family is a unit. This is the first unit of all life, and you have to have that. So it's not mimicking. It's, it, it believes that, but it's trying to take back. Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather. Since my man and I ain't together Keeps raining all the time That was Rando Jelks, author of the book Faith and Struggle in the Lives of Four African Americans, speaking with Worldview's Yulian Haida. And next they'll trace Jelks' discovery of Ethel Waters, who you're hearing now, along with Mary Lou Williams, Eldridge Cleaver, and Muhammad Ali. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm weary all the time, the time. This is Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Steve Bynum, in for Jerome McDonald. You're listening to an engaging conversation Worldview's Julian Haida is having with Randall Jelks, author of the book Faith and Struggle in the Lives of Four African Americans. The conversation continues. In your chapter on Muhammad Ali, you quote uh, Elijah Muhammad, and you mention I mean white devils and 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 Christianity being the white man's religion, and it seems like a lot of people in this book uh, that you, that you profile struggled about, uh, you know, how um, the particular denominations they're joining had that uh, particular injustice almost built in. Right. And while some people have the privilege of seeking refuge in a, in a religion or denomination, the, the people you profile in this book need to still struggle right. within their denomination. They, they do. They very, um, much, they very much do. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say about Muhammad Ali and this is the Catholic part of it. Uh, Floyd Patterson, uh, another heavyweight, uh, who had won the championship, although uh, he was smaller in stature, um, is 
converts to Catholicism. So religion's all through this, right? And he writes uh, in Sports Illustrated, kind of pretty harsh critique of Ali. And like Islam is not American in essence. And he's black. Ali's black. They, and they bring the Crusades into the ring. They bring a history uh, that's dating back uh, way, way, way to the 11th century, e- even into a boxing ring about Patterson believes that Catholicism is very much uh, an American religion. Mm. But he doesn't believe that Islam is American religion. Yeah, and you yourself said yeah, yeah. growing up, uh, you know, yeah. that you weren't really familiar with Right. Islam. No, but I mean, you know, like that's what I kept <laughs> – I hear the adults talk, well, well what's this – Islam they're talking about. Right. I mean, because... And in Louisiana, I mean... That's I, right, I, that's I, right. I, I, Definitely Catholic in Louisiana. Catholic everything. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> well, Catholic to everything else, but not Muslim. Right. Right, <laughs> right. right. That's right. Um, but, I mean, again, back to this kind of idea of liberation. I mean, a few times in the book, you quote, and this is... I mean, he just passed away, I think, a year or two ago, this famous theologian, James Cone, yeah. who wrote about the cross and the lynching the tree. tree, yes. Well, you know, and, and, or, or kind of toward a black theology, yeah. kind of... You know what? What Christianity has become, uh, and and trying to maybe compromises in the right wood, but finding a place where the the black lived experience in America, one where Christianity in America has been used to justify many injustices, whether it's slavery, Jim right. Crow. I mean, sure, and 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 that and and kind of building something out of that. So. And, and and you seem to to hunt down what the possible rationales that these each of these individuals in this book made to justify their conversions right. into particular churches, right? Uh, or, or or whatever the the position is that they are finding something meaningful for their lives. So, like I think it, I I think this word is overused in our society right now. But I think the two women are looking deeply for self care, um, the care of the soul. And you mean Mary Lou Williams and, and, and Ethel Waters. Waters? I think, I think the two men are looking for power, and in terms of structural power, of uh, because they think first of all, both men think men control the world, uh, even if they you know don't say that. That's that is what they do. So it's it's and it's, it's patriot. They invoke nationalism. That's a lot, right. Which is right. Right. And, it's, and nationalism has a strong patriarchal element uh, uh, to it, and so. I think that um, all nationalisms, um, whether it's from France or in the 18th century, all nationalism, although they use women as symbols, you know, of liberty <laughs> and of, so these nationalism comes with a deep, deep sense of a kind of patriarchal uh, of control and rectitude of father controlling the household, you know. But in, in terms of, uh, of these people um, – they are looking for dignity. Uh, all of them are, and and this is what they use to assert uh, dignity. And I think that people do this all uh, all the time. Uh, and this is not this is nothing new. The religion of oppressed people, those who who resist, find a god that helps them to resist the, the kind of torment that they're under. You know, uh, and um, I think all people do that over time in history. Yeah. Um, I was just telling you an American story, though. 
Did any of these people look to other parts of the world to? Well, you know, in uh, Muhammad Ali's case, he was looked at um, all over the world. And I'll tell you a, a really true story. I uh, I got to travel as a young person a great deal, and I was uh, on the border of Jordan and uh, Syria crossing into Syria. This is 1981, much far different time than it is today, going to Damascus. And um, the border guard got on the bus, you know, he's checking everybody's papers, um, and, and, and he comes to me, and I pull out the blue passport, and he looks at my picture, he looks at me again, looks at my picture, looks at me again, and in broken Arabic, he says, do you know Muhammad Ali? <laughs> and he was globally known as, and as a, a great Muslim all over the world. Um, and I think that we in the United States kind of take that for granted. But around the world, he was, you know, when he died, he genuinely was a global, a global event. I mean, Islam is a world religion, and it was looked at all over the world because not only did he bring black Americans respect, Many people thought he brought to be a Muslim respect. And so we often kind of shrink him, um, but he, uh, people admired him. But in terms of places where some of these people looked, I mean, if, if Muhammad Ali and, and the people that he followed looked towards Africa, where, uh, you know, Islam is certainly uh, very widespread, and, mm-hmm. uh, or, or, I mean, he, even someone like you know Mary Lou Williams, who looked to uh, you know Saint Martin de Porres in mm-hmm. South America. I mean, a, it seems like in trying to uh, reverse or find refuge from injustice in in the United States, they looked to uh, historical uh, methods of liberation in other parts of the world that were uh, religiously rooted and driven and contextualized? Sure. I mean, but I think that's all the case. I mean, I think uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s mentors um, looked to Mohandas Gandhi um, uh, as a symbol of uh, liberation. Well, they didn't uh, become Hindu, though. No, they didn't become Hindu, but they certainly... Uh, picked up and thought about the kind of spirituality that was uh, part of Gandhi's uh, uh, effort. Uh, so while I think people pick up what they need and what they, they want, no, they didn't become Hindu, um, but they certainly understood that there are some spiritual dimensions to struggling uh, for uh, uh, against a violent state and how you have to carry yourself so that you give dignity to the people uh, who you're fighting against. I mean, very much uh, a soul force, uh, satyagra, soul force, comes out of the soul. Uh, so, yeah, I think all, all, all of them. What I wanted to show was that there were a variety of voices in, in a certain era of life. There were a variety of voices, not just one. And at the pri- very private, most center people, there, there are lots of... There are lots of view, views and, and viewpoints. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Haida. I'm talking with Dr. Randall Jelks. He's a professor of African and African American studies as well as American studies at the University of Kansas. And we're talking about his book, Faith and Struggle in the Lives of Four African Americans, where he profiled Ethel Waters, Mary Lou Williams, Eldridge Cleaver, and Muhammad Ali. I wanted to ask one more question uh, because you – 
you profile four people and, 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 and they all have narratives. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how particularly in – and I'm using this concept in the theoretical way. But how colonized people, oppressed people use uh, oral history. To what degree can we infer what motivates people and, and to what degree can we take oral history and oral history, of course, being something that's very tied into religion to figure out something that may be historically true but isn't perhaps uh, written in, in traditional textbooks or – Well, of course, if anybody who takes uh, uh, the the Bible seriously and takes some any courses will know that there are a variety of oral uh, accounts smashed together – um, weaved together, redacted together. Um, so oral orality is in all all religious uh, accounts, you know. Uh, and he begat, and, and she begat, and begat, begat, <laughs> begat, begat, particularly in the the Torah. Um, sure, but in the Enlightenment, people right. said, you know, the history needs to be right. documented in such a way, and, and oral history but, still but, today but, gets but, a with bad God rap. documented in the Enlightenment, and of course, as uh, people got scientific, was not the story about ordinary day-to-day people. Uh, what got documented was the the lives of people who were the elite, and the rest of the people had nothing to say, right? Um, um, when you go back to records of slave patterns of sewing, uh, they left us other kinds of things, patterns of gardening, new food groups, uh, okra is a West African art for on the census, no names, no dates. Uh, so we have to kind of rebuild accounts of, of people. What did they leave us? They left us songs. They left us playing. So you you have to kind of build their, their lives in different ways. But people are living their lives, even if we think they don't count, they're making their lives count. And I think that's what religion does for people. They, My life counts, right? And we're uh, desperate to learn what they feared and feared. lived and right. the, hoped. Right, the, the, the Church of God in Christ, uh, one of the large uh, black Pentecostal church, they were the poorest of people. And... Poor women get all kinds of things, you know, on them. But they are giving these poor women um, dignity and that uh, God believes in them. I, I often tell my students, you know, the United States Supreme Court, when uh, Plessy versus Ferguson was uh, uh, announced, if you go back and look at the history of the justices, they went to the, all of the elite Ivy League schools and they were believing in social Darwinism. Well, these poor people, on the other hand, out in the Delta, so God made everybody one. Who was the more truthful? Who was the more educated? Um, who was the more powerful? The ones who said you, people have to be separate but equal, or the ones who got together in Los Angeles in 1906 and have a Pentecostal revival, interracial Pentecostal revival? Who's the more truthful? <laughs> <laughs> who's the? I mean, the formal education. Or these so people live their lives. Yeah, and we have a lot of work to do yeah. in the academy and yeah. in media to. Oh yeah, kind of understand and understand and stop stereotyping people. I mean, I think I think that's um, because somebody's religious doesn't mean they always even agree with their religious hierarchy. I mean, they may not, um, and and so those kind of these broad snapshots uh, sometimes is to sit down and really talk to people. What motivated Cesar Chavez? It's Catholicism. Um, 
Dolores Huerta, what motivates them? They're, they're, they're deep roots in their Catholic faith. They're saints. They're virgin. You can say all you want, um, but there are a lot of people who are, you know, you know, what I call my uh, cocktail sipping crowd, who are not doing what those people are doing. Or Fannie Lou Hamer. She said Jesus told her to get up and go out there and get people to vote. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> Uh, so sometimes we have to kind of, all of us have to have some humility about when we're speaking about people because they, they do extraordinary things uh, from their positions. Uh, Randall Maurice Jelks is the author of Faith and Struggle in the Lives of Four African-American Saints. And he's also a professor at the University of Kansas. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> did we, did we get, get a lot? Oh, yeah. Lot I thought there? it was a great conversation. <laughs> the number one greeting in my faith is peace, and that is, Assalamu alaikum. Which means, which means may peace, which means may peace be unto you. Randall Jelks is author of the book Faith and Struggle in the Lives of Four African Americans, Ethel Waters, Mary Lou Williams, Eldridge Cleaver, and Muhammad Ali. And he spoke to Worldview's Yulian Haida. Bees are endangered and produce so much of the food we need to survive. Tomorrow, Worldview will broadcast live from the only meadery in Chicago. We'll hear about the honey and spirits their bees produce on site. So join me and Monica Eng for a fun time tomorrow on WBEZ 91.5 FM. Worldview is produced by myself, Steve Bynum, and Yulian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering the program. I'm Steve Bynum, in today for Jerome McDonald. And you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5.